0: I think that clarity of purpose really allowed people to understand who I was because it shone, shines through in all sorts of ways beyond verbal communication.
1: Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnol, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on today's episode of the Inspire podcast is David Miller. Uh, David, welcome to the podcast.
0: Bart, thanks uh, very much for having me on.
1: You've had quite an impressive career. I mean, right now you're the managing director of international diplomacy at C40, and we'll talk a bit more about what you do at C40. And before that, you were president and CEO of World Wildlife Fund, and then before that, you held the role of mayor of uh, the city I've spent virtually my whole life in. So you've had a you've had a really impressive career, and I think one of the things that I wanted to have you on this podcast to talk about is all these roles really involve. Influence and Communication Without Authority. And so I thought it'd be great for us to talk about your journey, you know, what it's been and what lessons you've learned that you can share with others who may be looking to lead and inspire in, in on any stage. So yeah, great to have you on.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I I, I think the ideas of how to inspire, how to lead, how to communicate are really interesting. i wouldn't claim to be a student, or that any lessons I've learned have more been ones of experience and, and intuition. But I think the podcast is, is a great idea and I'm sure people take uh, an awful lot from it. So I look forward to the chat today, Bart.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe start with your story. I mean, if, you know, I, I first heard your name as mayor, but I know your story predates that. So maybe just walk me through how you got to that position in your life.
0: Well, it probably starts, I'm an only child of a single mom. Uh, I was born in the U.S., but we moved pretty quickly back to England where my mom was from and lived with my granddad. And I think uh, a lot of my journey started there because we lived in a tiny English farming village. The name was Triplo. It's outside Cambridge Um and there was a beet farm and uh, a dairy and uh, Parker's Eggs, who, by the way, had the only egg vending machine <laughs> I've ever seen anywhere. <laughs> but one of the things about growing up in England in the nineteen sixties was it was really marked by class difference. Hmm. It was it was very noticeable, even to to a young boy. Um, and you know, for example, my. Friends uh, were mostly the the sons of farmers and laborers because that's who there was. It was mm-hmm. a farming village, and um, they spoke with a particular accent. My mom was the teacher, literally the huh. teacher. Although there was also a, a half-time, part-time one, um, and uh, when I came home at night, you know, from about the age of four or five, after playing with the other boys, she would um, correct my accent they had a very distinctive farming community accent and she'd correct it and try to get me to speak like the queen so from the youngest age i was very cognizant of these kind of class differences and of course it played out in 60s england in a a lot of very powerful ways the you know the landed gentry owned all the land in the village Uh, because we were the teacher we were invited once a year because my mom was the teacher invited once a year for lunch not dinner on a Sunday, to their house, um, and they had a test back then called the 11-plus that every child would take at the age of 11, and if you passed, you got to go to an academic high school and could possibly go to university. If you failed, you would go to a technical school, and you never could wow. go to university or college, and that was decided at the age of 11. Wow. And of course, who passed the middle class kids, the kids of the landed gentry. There weren't particularly very many middle class kids there, but the the ones who were there, and who failed, the working class kids and the sons and daughters of the laborers. And you know, I recognized that from like the age of six. So I think, you know, I've, I had a long journey to politics. I eventually got there because I studied uh, economics and I became a lawyer, which was all about. Uh, it, it seeking justice really, I'm wondering why. One of the reasons mm. I studied economics was why is it like this? Why do the these kids have a chance and these other ones don't? And of course, ultimately, that led me to to politics. But I'm I'm mentioning that at some length because I do think for me, the values that got inculcated uh, in me at a very young age, you know, before the age of seven, have been reflected throughout my career in the choices I've made, whether political or environmental or anything else. And I, I think also reflect on my views about how to inspire and how to communicate.
1: It's amazing. Thanks, thanks for sharing the story. It's amazing how young you were to have, you know, that awareness of what you were seeing this classism and the inequity and that those of hell did, did new values as you, as you grew older, as you pursued economics and law, Did those become reinforced? Did new values and what you stood for come in? How how did your kind of thinking evolve?
0: Um, Well, I think, you know, I started paying attention to the environment, sort of Mm as an expression of the same kind of issues in a way. And uh, over time, you learn nuance and, and, you know, things you learn to see gray, not just black and Mm -hmm. white. But I think my basic values and, goals to to try and write these kinds of equities the basic ones in the core of it never really changed i mean my, my mom said to me if you talk like a farmer that's all you'll ever be
2: hmm.
0: and you know i would have been five hmm. wow that's pretty that's, that's harsh. pretty <laughs> powerful yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's her reality right that she saw but yeah
0: Well, it's her reality she grew up in. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, her story was she came from a working class family, and and as a girl, her career choices were secretary, nurse, and teacher.
2: Hmm.
0: So she became a a teacher, and um, she, which was from a working class family, a really prestigious thing to do. But her first job was in London in 1939 teaching the kids of the Ford plant in Dagenham which was very very seriously bombed so she had you know she she'd gone through a journey in in her life as as wow. well it certainly mm-hmm. hadn't been easy so I think she saw things very clearly she was certainly um, clear with me about the kinds of goals and aspirations mm-hmm. I should have to say the least
1: and I know maybe this is a good segue when we when we were talking about this podcast and what we might Go into. You were saying that hey, the first lesson that's grounded you in your communication is knowing who you are and what you stand for. Can Can you expand a bit on that and how this and kind it of fills into that?
0: Yes, you know why I uh, told this at some length was because you know my law career, my political career, and my post political career in the not for profit world and, and a little bit in the academic world. Have, have all been about trying to drive change. And my own belief is that it came from those, you know, youthful experiences mm-hmm. and the values that were shaped in, in that small village and the experiences <laughs> I had and, and, you know, the counseling of, of my mom. And so, uh, and I, I think the parts of my career that have gone incredibly well including being an outsider running for mayor. I, you know, when I uh, started the campaign, my campaign manager did a poll, and it turned out that 8% of Torontonians knew me.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, the
0: good news was that half of them, 4%, were going to vote for me. Huh. The, bad, the bad news is 4% doesn't win very many
1: elections. <laughs> a long way to go.
0: I, I wasn't discouraged by that because I was really clear to myself and with myself about what i stood for why i wanted to run for mayor and um, what what i what i wanted to do and i i think allied to my second uh, lesson which I'll, I'll get to in a second but i think that clarity of purpose mm-hmm. really allowed people to understand Um, who I was, because it shines through in all sorts of ways beyond verbal communication. Mm -hmm. You know, it also helped me be the best mayor that I could be, because I knew who I was and what I was trying to do. And I think substance aids communication tremendously. Mm. And when you have a consistency with, with, you know, what you're trying to do and who you are, it's a very it's very powerful, both in explicit kinds of mm-hmm. communications and in in more subtle ones.
1: And when you when you reach this realization that you know that was going to empower you to talk on your mayoral campaign, tell me how, like did you go out and talk about these things that you stood for? Did you share the kind of story that you told me on the campaign trail? um how, did, how did you kind of translate what you knew about yourself to what you communicated
0: i sometimes I tell those stories. I would certainly talk about being an immigrant to Canada because that in a you know a city of immigrants it's highly uh highly relevant um which takes me my second lesson uh, i did what I did and it's a bit of a a trick I suppose, but I found it very powerful and except for my very first political campaign and I was elected three times before I ran for mayor um, so I you know had a lot of campaigns except mm-hmm. for the very first one I did this every single time which is to write down what I was trying to do and what I was trying to achieve and you you know I would start by you know why do I want to run or run for mayor well this isn't right that's not right you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and but it it forced me, to, to really address what I was trying to do and do it in a way that after some work, I mean, this wasn't something, um, you know, you just write a big paper and then issue it, but after some work and after refining it was something I could really share with people, including, you know, when I'm running for counselor every day at the door, when you're talking to people, why are you right. running for counselor? Well, and I found that a really powerful tool. So I had the clarity of per- internal purpose in the mm-hmm. big picture about equality and then used this idea of writing it down, refining it, and then being prepared to share what I had uh, mm-hmm. written. And, and it has stood me in very good stead. I, I would literally sit down before an election and say, should I run in this election? Why? Why? What is uniquely, what uniquely can I contribute and, you know, how does it accord with my values? And I I found that tool massively powerful. And for a second reason as well, first of all, you could really communicate well with people Mm -hmm. and really make it clear what you were standing for. But secondly, it's also a tool for you. Hmm. Because you get buffeted by events. Right. And this is true in business, it's true in not-for-profits, it's true, certainly true in politics. We look at President Biden right now got elected to deal with the legacy of his predecessor, to deal with the pandemic, to deal with America's infrastructure, and he's being buffeted by events in the Middle East. Events mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And when you write, when you've written down and refined and shared what you're trying to do, you can go back to that in those difficult times when you might get bumped off course. So it serves two mm-hmm. really powerful purposes from my perspective.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, uh, to your first purpose, there's there's that quote, uh, a tribute, I believe, to Mark Twain. I don't know if it's a, apophical or, or not, but it's that, uh, excuse the length of this letter, I didn't have time to be brief. <laughs> you know, yes. th- the idea that It takes time to reach clarity and you have to put the work in. And when you listen to someone who's very clear in the moment, there's often been a huge amount of work that's gone into that. So that's I I completely can see how you putting that work in ahead of time, let you reach that clarity and communicate. And then your second point is a really fascinating one, because I think you're right, you know, in communication, particularly now, so much communication is spontaneous or in the flow or something happens and you're. You know, you're doing you're in Q&A that the most effective leaders really can respond and give the audience what they need, but then shift back to what they believe in and what they're committed to. So, yeah, I I think it's a great point.
0: You know, Bart, you raise a, a really critical point there because it's very easy in the heat of the moment on particularly social media and you're required to respond immediately just to respond or to respond to a very with a very stilted kind of talking Mm -hmm. point you know that i've been told to say this and this is the position what what i'm talking about if you do it right if you take it really seriously and really write down really refine it that stays with you and it comes out naturally Mm. so you you end up when you're pressed in a moment like that when you have to respond to something very quickly you're much more likely to do it in a way that is consistent with your overall communications and who you are, without coming across as a, a stilted, right. you know, kind of talking point. And it, one thing that drives me crazy about uh, communications—if you listen to a lot of elected officials and a lot of senior business leaders—you can actually hear them reading talking oh, points. Oh,
1: not so far. Sure. And and the other thing that drives me nuts in Q&A, you know, they know they have to get to their scripted messages, so they'll just ignore the question. And then it's like they have to check it off the list. And it's it's, you know, insulting to the questioner. And it's so transparent that what they're trying to do that it achieves nothing other than alienation. Uh, well, the, yeah,
0: the famous the famous one there is uh, Kissinger, who apparently came to a Biden- this is apocryphal probably, too. But he came to a press conference and said, do you have any questions for my answer?
1: <laughs> I haven't heard that one. He, he's got he's got so and, many great lines. My, my just an aside on that one. Uh, my dad who spent 40 years as an academic shared, you know, one great quote with me. He was up for full professor. and It was kind of a torturous, punishing process, you know, to get this promotion, which he got. And he, I said, gosh, you know, it's really brutal. And he said, you know, it's like Kissinger said, the stakes are, or the battles in academia are so fierce because the stakes are so low.
0: Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> apparently that's
1: true as well. It is. So so once you've got, once you've done that work, so you figure out who you were, then that second lesson you took, you've refined it, you've written it down. How did you then, you know, think I hate the word strategically, but think ahead and and into running a campaign and to what you're doing now with C40 and, you know, trying to bring about kind of global change with cities. Like how do you then use that clarity of thinking uh, to communicate effectively?
0: Well, I I mean, I think at at the heart of it is you need to, to build your plan around what you stand for. Okay. So it's, If you're going to inspire, it needs to be authentic. Needs to be you. You do. You do need to listen, and the best politicians are really good listeners and absorb. But it really needs to be built around what you stand for, um, because then the authenticity speaks and is inspiring. So, you know, my current role, director of international diplomacy, C40 Climate Leadership Group, is an organization of the mayors of the world's largest cities who've come together to help the world avoid dangerous climate change. And they use their actions as mayors of really big cities like London, Jakarta, Cape Town, Los Angeles, Paris, and also their voices. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I'm there is because these values are very aligned to mine. Climate change is inequitable. It's been caused by the richest societies. Its impact is felt the most in in the poorest, even within um, uh, you know, relatively well-off countries like the United States, uh, people who are less well-off tend to get hurt more by environmental mm-hmm. degradation. Uh, you know, for example, at Hurricane Sandy, which is probably climate-related, in New York, in, in Queens, they were still cleaning up four years later. Wow. Wall Street was about 10 days. Wow. So I see this through an equity lens. So, you know, I, I, and that's why I joined rejoined the organization. I've been involved uh, before when I was mayor. And so my job there is to help uh, the mayors use the actions that they're doing to influence international action uh, on climate. So for example, uh, my team arranged a meeting between uh, about 20 of our, our key mayors and the UN secretary general a couple of weeks ago to talk about how do we we use his influence to get national governments to invest their stimulus funds in ways that are environmentally sustainable, you know, in transit, for example. And all all of our work, for me, is about uh, using the underlying... Values of addressing this issue boldly because mm-hmm. um, it's it's inequitable um, to help amplify the voices of the mayors, and because I've I've used this system of mine, being in touch with my values, writing it down, refining it, sharing it. Our our plan has really stuck to this theme of being about actions. And voices, because in the in the environmental world, there are a lot of advocates. Mm-hmm. It's much more powerful to have a group of, of leaders of major governments. We represent about, our cities represent about 25% of the world GDP, just to give some sense. Mm-hmm. Leaders of major governments saying, we've got this program, which is reducing emissions by this and creating jobs for low-income people by this amount. We want you, uh, you know, president of this country to support us by doing X. Right. So that there's there's always a connection in our strategies, our communication, um, both public communication and communication to targeted audiences that goes back to the very heart of what we're trying to do, which is using the actions, as well as the voices. And those voices are always grounded mm-hmm. in the reality of what's happening in these cities. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's a good example yeah. of, of building a plan around what we stand for and what I stand for as an individual as well.
1: I'm hearing from you, too, that you know here you have this collection of, of strong voices that you're also kind of trying to unite them so there's not too many messages that you're trying to have a clear call to action and you're really trying to target the messaging so that it's not just, you know, kind of scattershot, but it's harnessing people together. Is that, is that accurate to say?
0: Absolutely. Simple, clear messages, you know, the basics are, are yeah. and the thing, thing about the mayors, and it's probably my, you know, my fourth point that the mayors speak like actual people, hmm. uh, they, they, talk about real things. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's really important to me. I, I think the most successful leaders use, without talking down to people, use language that's real, mm-hmm. and you use very real examples. I used to get told uh, all the time, I'd give a speech when I was mayor, mm-hmm. and then there'd be questions and answers, and people would say, oh, uh, the question and answers are the best part of your speech. Right. So <laughs> I said to my staff, why are you having me do speeches?" Right, we'll just go to the Q&A.
1: <laughs> I think it's so true. I mean, I I don't know if you know, I wrote a book a few years ago on jargon and why it gets in the way of leadership. And I think, you know, the most effective leaders know that they have to reach their audience. It's not about what they know and the fancy words they can use. And I, I was reading something recently about kind of insight into how President Biden's operating. He is, you know, will encourage these, you know, endless policy debates and then make his decision, but he will be ruthless to people who try and speak in jargon. And he says, you know, let's make it something that people can understand. So I think it is it is a clear characteristic of of leaders who think about their audience, that they want to cut through that.
0: You know, I think one of the good things about Biden, um, you know, he talks about real things using real language, but he doesn't talk down to people. right? He's not he's not trying to, you know, talk at a grade six level or grade four level or something. Right. You know you know, if you listen to his speeches, every single speech he says good union jobs. Hmm. Now what does he mean by that? Well, he probably means, you know, well paid union jobs like the auto workers used to be. Mm-hmm. But I think I think he also means something like I've got a strategy to rebuild the industrial heartland of America like Scranton where I grew up mm-hmm. in order to bring back the good times and that's what people hear.
2: Hmm.
0: And I I like it because it, it, it's something you you know everybody has an idea what he means by that but it has a much bigger meaning and it's not jargon. Right. It's plain plain clear language. Uh, and he's not afraid to use plain, clear language. I mean, Barack Obama, hmm. who inspired very differently, and mm-hmm. it was a kind of flowery speaker, but he was very accessible as well. Yes, and and uh, you know, for for me, if if you look in the corporate world in particular, the uh, I, I'm guessing because a lot a lot of senior leaders are chosen for other skills they don't have that quite that same gift. And I, hmm. I think it's absolutely essential. And if you know, if you go back to my speeches, one of the reasons that people like the question and answers was because I gave real examples right. that weren't made, made up, weren't theoretical, weren't about a policy that might happen in some right. day <laughs> someday in the future. They were about something actually real. Hmm. Um, and uh, therefore, You know, I was prevented by Mm -hmm. being jargony or wonky because I was was talking about something actual real that people could understand. Mm -hmm. Like, we're building the largest expansion of transit in North America, and we're doing it by light rail. Light rail means that it's like European trams. They'll be in the middle of the road, but with their own right of way. And what's good about that, it means they can come on time and much faster because they're not stuck in rush hour traffic like buses are. Right.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, what, what you're saying, I, I want to kind of touch on that, you know, the piece going back to something you just said a moment ago around corporate versus public. Because you know, I, I hadn't thought about it, but I think, you know, there are some, I think you're right that generally speaking, the, the standard for that ability to inspire is lower in the corporate world. And I think there are a few reasons at the top. You know, first is that you're, you're generally appointed, not elected. You know, when you when you talk about having to go door to door to win, you know, go from four percent of the vote to whatever percent you won with, you know, a corporate executive is is tapped on the shoulder or hired by, you know, selected through a search firm. And so they they may only have to convince four people or you know, five people on the board to get the job. And then the other th- thing I think is that um the world has changed. And it used to be that the communication demands on executives were not as dramatic, you know, it was you keep the board happy, you, maybe you do investor relations, but today I think it's changing. You know, I think co- CEOs who are not strong communicators are being called out and caught out. And you look at everything from like what Google's facing with workers, you know, demanding more equitable treatment of, of women, for example, in the following the me too movement, or you look at companies who are facing backlash when their executives poorly handle, um, the, our growing awareness, awareness of systemic racism. I think there's, you just can't hide anymore if you're a poor communicator.
0: I, I think that's spot on, Bart. And, and, you know, I didn't mean it to be critical. It's different training. My mm-hmm. training in communication was very practical. I knocked on, I don't know exactly, let's say over uh, one, two, five, seven, eight elections just for me and I campaigned for other candidates, eight elections for me, probably, I knock on probably 275,000 doors. Wow. <laughs>
1: That's a lot.
0: At which people were home. Right. Right. right? And so you, and there are lots where they weren't. So you learn to listen and really internalize, not just, you know, hear and and, and just say blah, blah. And you also, you learn if you're trying to learn, you learn pretty quickly how to communicate clearly on a variety of subjects and how to do it under under pressure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, somebody who's, who's, let's say, become the, the president of a bank, that's an incredible career, but will have had a lot less of that experience because that's not what you do. So, I think they have to find other ways to learn it and maybe I, knock I on some
1: point.
0: doors. <laughs> well, maybe
2: they
1: metaphorically care, or literally care. go talk to your go talk to your employees. Yeah,
0: yes, they they should certainly do that, but they may want to actually get out and knock on doors too. I I'd be I could find some people that would take them uh, to some interesting neighborhoods. But I you know, the basic lessons of uh, are the same, but you I think you're spot on. Today, it's it's a required job skill. And if you see somebody like um, how McCain Foods, uh, Maple Leaf, the McCain family responded when Maple Leaf Foods had a very bad crisis a few years ago. Yes, that was a
1: great example.
0: Very like they acted immediately. They took responsibility and they communicated personally in using very clear language that wasn't condescending. Um, and and they didn't try baffle gab. They didn't try to evade responsibility. And, and and that matters because they were they came across as being authentically them. We care about this business. We built it. It's our values. You know we mm-hmm. want. We, or uh, to some extent, Galen Weston Jr. Um, uh, you know is in ads a lot, but is, is, is pretty gifted. I I think when you have challenges like a push from younger people for fundamental change about how women are treated, how people from diverse communities are treated, how, how companies have to respect the environment mm-hmm. and deal with climate change. All these issues are, are things that business leaders weren't trained in. And, and if they can't inspire with their authentic response to the issue, as well as their words they're going to be very, very quickly in a really difficult uh, mm-hmm. situation. And I, I fully agree with you. It's very different than the
1: 20 years ago, for Pro- sure. Probably why our company is doing so well right now. <laughs> David, I, I want to seize this opportunity that I have you here. We'll do, we'll do a lightning round because, you know, it's been really neat talking about like Barack Obama and President Biden. So I'm just going to say a couple names and you tell me what you think of their communication. And then I'll ask you to name one of your own. So you're in the your passionate about the environmental movement. Greta Thunberg, what do you think?
0: Uh, I think she's amazing because she's authentic, clear, and uh, uses very powerful language. How dare you? Hmm. Boy, that's powerful. Al Gore. I like Al Gore a lot. Um, I think his film was incredible extremely powerful, but today's probably most effective speaking to people who are already persuaded. Hmm.
1: And if the mayors that you work with, who is the most, I mean, obviously they're, yeah, I'm not asking you to pick a favorite, but a couple who stand out to you as truly inspiring communicators.
0: Well, if I can change that slightly to truly effective.
1: Yeah, go for it. Um,
0: it's several, if if you don't mind. Absolutely.
1: Um, it's good to know there are several.
0: <laughs> Richard Daly from Chicago mm-hmm. was incredibly effective using very simple language. And he was effective because he lived in breathed Chicago. It was his life. Mm. It had been his life from when he was a child. It remained his life. And, so, and that just shone through the mm-hmm. very clear, simple language, because he was fully connected with his values. I don't know if he wrote it all out like I do, mm-hmm. but he lived and breathed. Everything he did was was about Chicago. So he was very effective that way. Um, Mayor Eric Garcetti from Los Angeles, mm-hmm. very clear. He's a very intellectual guy. Uh, I believe he has a PhD. He's got a fascinating life. He's fostered several sets of children hmm. several Wow really really quite an amazing human being and, and what's brilliant about him is although his language tends to be less simple it's very accessible and and his genuineness and empathy comes hmm. through and his backstory is um, he's partly Jewish and, and partly Mexican heritage and his grandmother was brought across the Rio Grande or his grandfather in the arms of his great grandmother. Wow. So he's got this powerful backstory that comes out with this, you know, fairly academic guy. It's really uh, Mayor Anne Hidalgo of
1: Paris. Mm. Yeah, she's changing that. I mean, I look at what they're doing for biking as a cyclist. It's it's, uh, just transformed the city in such a short period of time.
0: Incredible. And she, you know, there was a huge backlash among right. some in what she was trying to do. She got overwhelmingly reelected because and, and I'm picking her because she was able to communicate what she was trying to do in the midst of this whole big storm hmm. of how dare you cut out cars. People aren't going to come into Paris. It'll be terrible. We'll right. go bankrupt. And people loved what she's doing. They want more cycling. They want more walking. They want the banks of the river to be for people, not to be a highway. Um, And through the middle of this storm, and there were lawsuits and all sorts of political problems, she she wrote it. She won, and she won the day because she's so gifted about being clear as Mm. to the underlying purpose that benefited people and connecting with people about it. So those that's those powerful. I would pick for and quite I, different reasons.
1: And I think, you know, that last example just shows that you, it's, it's kind of ironic, right, as a politician, having never been one myself. But I imagine that in the moment you feel, as you said, buffeted and pressured to give people what they yell about. But really, her story illustrates that if you have conviction about what they need, it will give you the courage to push through and realize your vision. And that's really what people want from you.
0: You know, uh, that is exactly what people want, the substance. They actually want the substance. Whatever they say, you can tell by their behavior that they really want the substance, but they need to understand what you're trying to do. If you can't reach them on that and inspire them, you've lost. And I'll give you an example in my own case. Uh, one of the things we did when I was mayor was bring in a new land transfer tax, which, as you can imagine, Bart, was somewhat uh, controversial. Yes, I paid it. I paid
1: it when I bought my house.
0: Well, there you go. Sorry
1: about that. Hey, I'm happy to We have low property taxes here, so it's least we can do.
0: (laughs) Well, we we had to do something because when I got elected, Toronto, uh, if it had been a business, would have been declared bankrupt. We couldn't Hmm. meet our obligations. And Every single political consultant since uh, Ronald Reagan and Brian Mulroney and since the GST will tell you you can't run an election on uh, raising taxes. Well, all of my elections I ran on. I said, they've got to be fair, but we've got to pay. If we want a great city, we've got to pay for it. And I actually ran in the 2006 election uh, saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build transit, housing, opportunities for young people, environment jobs, but we're going to have to pay for it. I'm going to ask you to pay a little more in your property taxes, and we're going to bring in some new kinds of taxes once the province passes the City of Toronto Act. Every political consultant in Canada would say, Miller can't do that. Right. He'll lose. I got si- I got 60% of the vote. Wow. And I I like to think part of that was because I was able to fairly clearly connect what people wanted, which were all these good things, And what you needed to do in order Mm -hmm. to get that, which is make sure the city had the money to make those uh, investments. And I I think, you know, Mayor Hidalgo faced probably more of a storm than than Mm -hmm. I did, although um, uh, there was a fair bit of a storm at the time. But it shows to me the the same principle that, and it it applies to business, it applies not-for-profits, universities, Mm -hmm. everybody. If you're connected authentically, with something you really believe in and are communicating about it with with passion and good, clear language, uh, you're going to inspire people mm-hmm. and they'll come
1: along with you. That's a perfect way to end the interview. I um, I really appreciate you coming on. I think, you know, just kind of on a hopeful note, when I look at the problems facing the world and I, and then I talk to someone like yourself, who's really led a life of service stem from those convictions as a six-year-old that you began to develop it it gives me hope you know that there are there are many like you out there and that you will kind of harness the collective of the world um to bring about real change so i appreciate appreciate all you're doing and for sharing your story and your wisdom with me today
0: it's a pleasure bart keep up uh, the excellent work and uh, um, in particular look forward to other episodes of the podcast
1: thanks david take care okay
0: Cheers. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, I really felt lucky today to have the opportunity to talk with David Miller and learn more about his life. I mean, we've been, uh, I I knew him as our mayor before I knew him as my neighbor and to hear his life story, to hear how his formative years shaped his commitment to a, a life of service and then to hear how hard he's worked to develop an authentic an effective style uh, for communication. There's there's a lot of lessons there for anyone who wants to get great at inspiring. And uh, I know I took a lot of the way that I'll be able to incorporate into my own communication. Next time on the pod, I bring on a member of the Humphrey Group. Uh, for our first time this year, if you've been a longtime listener, you know every year I bring on some of our talented professionals. And I'm pleased to welcome Sanjay Patil, who is a lawyer. He's worked in uh, all over the world. He is an expert facilitator. He has his own practice. And he joins me to tell his story and talk about mindfulness and awareness and, uh, and authenticity and how all these things intersect today for leaders who want to be able to know themselves, to be calm, and to inspire. So really fascinating conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it as I do. Until then, please rate review the show uh, i read all the comments and appreciate you listening